Hello and welcome to the Hidden Acres Podcast. I'm Eric Smith. And I'm Taylor Muggy. And we're excited to bring you four episodes this week, all of them from our men's retreat that took place this year on January 22nd through 24th. In those chapel messages, Paul Bauman from the EFCA Central District spoke on overcoming four misconceptions concerning God's requirements for men. This is message number four and was recorded on Sunday, January 24th. The main theme is the impact of our leadership in the lives of others. Thanks for listening, and please enjoy the message. Well, good morning. I want to invite you to take your Bibles uh, this morning for a little bit as we, as we look into the Word and turn to the book of Genesis, making it really easy for you. Genesis 1. Um, as I look back over uh, years of ministry, there's multiple things that brought me great joy, probably more joy uh, than, than sorrow, but there were some moments in ministry as well that were um, at times difficult. I want to share one of those stories with you this morning. Um, it happened almost three years ago, uh, and it, it involves a, a family that I was very well acquainted with um, in, in our ministry there. Um, they, they, the, the family's mother, the matriarch of the family, had passed away, a lady that knew Jesus, loved Jesus, and uh, she had been involved in, in, in that church for numbers of years. Um, she, when I got to the church that 14 years ago, she was actually kind of on her way down as far as her involvement, and so she wasn't as invested at that point, but I had heard about just her, uh, her impact, and, and of course, they had kids in the church, and then they also then had kids, so they had grandkids in the church, and then it got to the point that there were um, great-grandkids uh, in the church, and so when she passed away, we gathered to meet um, as a family, and one of the things I like to do as a pastor when, when there's a funeral is I'd like to get the family together, especially mom, the, 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 their spouse if they're still living, as well as in the kids and their spouses, and just allow them a chance to talk and reflect um, on the life of the one that they're celebrating, and especially when they, know, when they knew Jesus and they know Jesus and they're with him. And it's so much more um, easy to do, uh, obviously, those, those funerals. But as we gathered as a family, it was a weird dynamic. I immediately sensed it when I walked into the room. Um, her husband was still living. They had been married, I think, for almost 60 years, if not maybe even a year or two over that. And he was sitting off to the side, and the rest of the family was gathered more kind of in a group. Um, and I could sense that the kids were kind of wanting him to get into the group, but he just, he just didn't. He stayed off to the side. And so I started asking. I have a series of questions that I just start walking through. Tell me a word that describes your mom. What will you miss the most about your mother? And it just really starts to get the conversation flowing. And it's a great time of healing. So as this conversation was going on, we were well into an hour, and I typically don't like to go longer than that. So I thought, and he hadn't said anything. I'm thinking, here's a man who's been married um, to this woman for over 60-some years. The, the thought now of her just not being present in and of itself was just difficult to even comprehend what that would be like because they had literally been together um, all of those years. And so I decided to do something that I kind of regret now is I thought, well, I'm just going to ask him. I mean, he's, we're here in front of family. And so I said to him, what do you or what did you appreciate most about your wife of almost 60 years? Now, as a husband um, who's, who's not even half of what they had been married, I was looking for and thinking, man, 
he's going to give some sort of nugget here that's just going to be, I'm, I'm going to take this. It's going to be just kind of a side benefit of being able to be a part of this family. <clears throat> and he looked at, looked at me, and without hesitation, here's what he said. He said this statement, she ran the home so I could work. And that's all he said. She ran the home so I could work. And instantly I knew why the dynamic in that room was so weird. This was a man who, for the better part of their adult lives and their lives as kids, had been completely and utterly disengaged in the context of that home. He was present. When people asked him where he lived, he would have put that address down. He w they would have said, that's my dad. But he was not engaged at all. He perfectly operated from our final misconception as men concerning what God requires of us, and it was this. God is not concerned with who is leading spiritually as long as someone is. In other words, if I delegate that responsibility, good enough. And that's the way this man lived his life. I also had the opportunity just before I left to do his funeral. When I was sat by the graveside, I was standing and talking with his grandchildren who were far more open about the way life was. And I asked them, I said, what, what do you think your grandpa meant by that? Because this kind of rippled through the family. And one of them said to me, the statement that they said, and I'll never forget this, is they said he always felt like mom or grandma was a better spiritual leader, so he just left that stuff to her. The question I want to focus as we wrap up our time this weekend is this, is God concerned with who is leading your home? And is God concerned with who is leading in the context of his church? I think he is. Matter of fact, I know he is. And as we come to the book of Genesis, the first three chapters, to me, it really informs our theology and the remainder of the book or the, or the, the books of the Bible as our understanding of what God expects and what he desires. And I love the emphasis this morning, Scott, on grace because I want this to be laced with grace. I'm a poet and I didn't even realize it. Because it's hard to lead, but there are some clear expectations. Some of the clearest statements regarding God's plan for how marriage and the home should function can be found in the first few chapters of Genesis. So I want to zip through these with you. I might go a little bit quicker, so those of you that are note takers, if you want, you can come up afterwards and take a picture if you didn't get everything down, or if you don't care, that's fine. I don't care either. Um, but I want to share with you three insights from this particular creation account. Genesis 1, a passage there starting in verse 26 through 27 and 28. Look at Genesis 2, and then I want to end in Genesis 3 with a challenge. <clears throat> in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, there's a series of insights that we discover concerning God's vision for leadership and how the home should function. It says in verse 26, then God said, let us make people or let us make man in our image to be like ourselves. They will be masters over all life, the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky and all the livestock, wild animals and small animals. 
So God created man in his own image. God patterned him after himself. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and told them, multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and be masters over the fish and birds and all the animals. Insight number one is this, and this is critical in our culture today. The biblical basis of true equality is being created in the image of God. It is not our roles and responsibilities. The biblical basis of true equality is being created in the image of God, not our roles and responsibilities. Guys, there is a statement or a message or a narrative in our culture today that says equality is based on the role and responsibility. The Bible says differently. We are created equal because we are made in the image of God. Equality does not require the same roles and responsibilities. This is especially important today because in order for everyone to be equal, they're saying or suggesting, then everything must be the same, which is why there is a significant attack on the traditional home as we understand it defined in the Word of God. Men and women are created equal. The first advocate for the equality of women was Jesus Christ or the Scriptures itself in that, that both men and women were created equal. So I'm not suggesting by any means this morning that we're reverting back to the old days where women were not necessarily treated with the greatest amount of respect. Women and men are created equal because we are made in the image of God and our equality has nothing to do with our roles and responsibilities and we've got to knock that off. Because we are changing everything about the way that God has established His institution and that's starting to trickle in to the local church. Insight number two from this text is the Bible recognizes the distinction between a man and a woman as divinely ordained and purposeful. So if you're here this morning and you're a man, you need to listen to this. I think that includes just about everybody. The Bible recognizes the distinction between a man and a woman. In other words, gender does matter. But that distinction is divinely ordained and purposeful. So when God created us in His image, He ordained roles and responsibilities to be exercised over and in creation according to His purposes and His plan. These are essential differences in order for life to function well between men and women. And these differences are intentional and they're purposeful. Flip over a chapter to Genesis chapter 2. Jump down to verses 15 through 17. Again, we have a fuller expression here, a more detailed account of the creation of count. And we see in verses 15 through 17 the following. It says that the Lord God placed the man, Adam, in the garden of Eden to tend it and care for it. But the Lord gave him this warning, you may freely eat any fruit in the garden except fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat of its fruit, you will surely die. I want you to notice carefully in the passage, 
God gives Adam spiritual authority. Where is Eve at this point? She's not there. Right? How do we know that? And the Lord said, verse 18, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a companion who will help him. Does the order of creation matter? Yes. We don't have time to look at it this morning, but jot down in your notes 1 Timothy chapter 2, specifically verse 14, where the Apostle Paul is teaching Timothy about the way the local church is to function right before he goes into the passage about the roles of an elder. And he talks about men and women and their authority in the local church. And he goes back to this creation account. And in that passage, he says the order of creation matters. Adam was created first, right? Are we all on the same page? And then Eve was created. Are men and women equal? Yes. So because Eve was created second, doesn't mean she's not equal. She's equal because she was created in the image of who? God. Okay, this is significant. Adam, it would seem from the Genesis account, was responsible then to pass on God's instruction regarding the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when God gives this account or gives this instruction, he gives it along with the responsibilities associated with what it means to have dominion over the earth. Now look at verse 18. Because Adam is alone, God has given Eve a responsibility. But what is her responsibility? Adam's responsibility implied in this passage is spiritual headship. We don't need to make that, make it that an issue because we know from Genesis 3, we also know 1 Timothy 2, that that in fact is the case. So what is the role or responsibility that God gives to Eve? And the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a companion who will help him. I, I, notice what I did there with that word. I emphasized that word. So what is her role? She, she's a helper, isn't she? If he's the, if he is the head, she is the helper. Now that sounds very diminished, but here's what the word helper means in its original. One who supplies strength in areas that are lacking. So think about the vision that God is building for the home here. Adam, you are the head. I am giving you spiritual headship and authority. You are to bring my instruction into the home. You are to bring my instruction into the world in which you have dominion over. And in order for you to do this, I will give you a helper. A helper is more than somebody who carries out errands, if you will. The helper is one who supplies strength. So the inference is that Eve provides strength to Adam as he pursues God's agenda. So here's an, a conclusion we can make. Marriage and a home is in every sense a team effort with clear roles and responsibilities. Insight number three then is this. God's response after the fall, Genesis 3, to Adam and Eve strongly indicates the responsibility of headship was Adam's alone. Our question is, can we delegate authority as men if our wives are better at it? The answer to that question is absolutely not. That is, guys, our role. To young guys that are not yet married, understand this now. When you enter into the marriage covenant, 
you do so with the responsibility of spiritual headship and authority. So you better start preparing for that right now. Right now. If you go to Genesis chapter 3, I told you this was easy, one more chapter over, we see the account of the fall, but I want you to notice what's happening in this passage. If we think about the role of headship and we think about Eve's role as a helper and that God was the one who told Adam the, the instructions concerning the trees in which they could eat or not eat from, notice what happens here. It says, now the serpent was the shrewdest of all the creatures the Lord God had made. Really, he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat any of the fruit in the garden? Who does the serpent approach? The woman. Verse 2, of course we may eat it, the woman told him. It's only the fruit from the tree at the center of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God says, says we must not eat it or even touch it or we will die. Well, there's the first recorded case of legalism. God didn't say they couldn't touch it. But they added that to it, or she did. And it's interesting in this text, when we think about this, here's a question. Was Eve present when God instructed them both not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Well, for just basing it on the passage, which is all we can do, in Genesis chapter 2, Eve was not there when God gave that instruction. So how does Eve know not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Adam. We have to assume that Adam has done what he's been called to do to instruct her. But at this point, where is Adam? I'll give you a hint. He's there. He's there. So what should Adam be doing right now in this moment as the serpent comes and is seeking to deceive Eve into eating from the tree? As his role as a spiritual head, what should he be doing? Yeah. Does he have dominion over creation? Yes. God has given that authority. All authority belongs to God. It's not something that we're born into or that we gain because of who we are. It's given to us by God, which means there's a stewardship of it, which means that one day we will answer for what we did with the authority he gave us. Whether we abused it, whether we used it properly, or we delegated it away, we will give an account for that. So here's Adam in the context of the garden. The serpent comes, and he's seeking to deceive Eve. And we know from Paul's account in 1 Timothy 2, that Eve was deceived. And Adam was silent. But he was present. He watched this unfold. Continuing on, verse 4. He responds, he being the serpent, responds to Eve, you won't die, the serpent hissed. God knows that your eyes will be open when you eat of it. You will become just like God, knowing everything, both good and evil. Remember the struggle with our sin nature, our flesh wanting to be in control? Right here, that concept is introduced. Ah, right? I mean, all of us looking back over the course of humanity are saying, don't do it. It goes downhill from there. God knows that your eyes will be open when you eat it. Verse 5, you'll become just like God, knowing everything, both good and evil. And the woman was convinced the fruit looked so fresh and delicious. 
It would make her wise, so she ate some of the fruit, and she also gave some to her husband, which is why we know he's there, who was with her. Then he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they strung fig leaves together around their hips to cover themselves. Now look at what happens when the Lord comes in the evening. Toward the evening they heard the Lord God walking about in the garden, so they hid themselves among the trees. That's like a little kid putting their hand in front of their eyes and saying, you can't see me because I cannot see you. And the all-knowing, all-powerful, all-seeing God comes and says to Adam, where are you? He replied, I heard you, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked, have you eaten the fruit I commanded you not to eat? These are all questions God knows the answer to. Yes, Adam admitted, but it was the woman you gave me who brought me to the fruit and I ate it. Brilliant, Adam. <laughs> Remember our propensity to want to be perceived as okay? <laughs> then the Lord God asked the woman, how could you do such a thing? And of course, the serpent tricked me, she replied, and that's why I ate it. I want you to notice in the passage, and you should never overlook this because it's there for a reason. Who does God look to first for an explanation about what has happened? <laughs> who thank you Adam that will never ever change if you're here this morning and God has given you the opportunity to lead in a home and in a marriage he will always come to you first because the responsibility of headship matters to him it matters to him. We're, we, we know from the passage, we're not going to look at this any further than where we are now, but later on we see that because Adam blames Eve, that then things, because of the results of the fall, things become sideways and his life becomes miserable as a result. It's the fulfillment of this thing of spiritual separation from God. It's, it's the reality of what was going to happen from eating from this tree. So why does God seek out Adam first? Because he was responsible for what happened. How do we know this? Because the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy or 1 Timothy 2, when he teaches on the topic of spiritual authority in the context of the local church, he uses this account. He says, Eve was deceived, but Adam, when Adam took the fruit and he ate it, he did so knowingly, willingly, disobediently he did. He was not deceived. When Paul says that, he's not saying that Eve was some weak little woman who she's to blame. That's not it at all. The spiritual priority in the moment that is taking place, the fall of man, it rests upon Adam and his unwillingness to exercise this authority and this dominion that God had given to him. When Paul instructs Timothy regarding the roles of men and women in the church, he appeals to the creation model in the same way that Jesus does when he's asked about divorce. He appeals to the creation model and says, this is my vision for the home. This is my vision for marriage. Is everything messed up? It's messed up, but this is still 
what I desire from you. Guys, you're being told you don't matter in the context of the home, which is why the home is being torn down and torn apart. You do matter. And you matter because God says you matter. There's a significance to this passage that we oftentimes miss. I want to suggest to you as we draw this part to a close that God has given specific roles for men and for women in the home. Headship for men and helper for women. Now I want to offer or suggest there's two critical mistakes that we make with this role. Here's the first one. And this is why I think we've got some messed up homes and some messed up churches and some messed up marriages. We treat spiritual headship as a rank rather than a responsibility. What does the word rank make you think of? Military. Well, you know the best thing about the military is you can always pass it off to the guy below you, right? Which is why it stinks to be the private. First guy in there. Because you can get everything sent to you. The context of the military works in that realm. But the marriage in the home is not the military. The role of spiritual head is a responsibility that you are given and what you do with it is up to you, but you will be held accountable for it. But one of the options we have is not to delegate that and say, honey, you're better at this than me, so I'm going to give this to you. Now, that doesn't mean you have to do every single thing. My wife was way better at reading children's books to the kids about Jesus than I was. I had a tendency to read them like a preacher reads them. She read them with more inflection and, and she changed her voice and things like that. But she did that together with me under my spiritual authority as the head over that home. I didn't disconnect and say, I don't want to be a part of this because I'm not good at this, so you just take care of it and you do it. Because when we do that, our sons, especially around the age of 13, when they see that, you know what they say then? This doesn't matter to me anymore either because it doesn't matter to dad. It doesn't matter to dad. This is what women do. And I don't want anything to do with this. When we view spiritual headship as a rank, we view our role as something we can delegate. And guys, I'm telling you right now, you cannot delegate your role as a spiritual head, a spiritual authority. Whether it's in the home, whether it's in the marriage, whether it's in a dating relationship, and the responsibility to make sure that you pursue God's desires for that relationship until it goes to where it needs to, if it's going to be the covenant of marriage, or you part ways. And whatever it might be in the context of the church as well. We cannot delegate that. The church has become incredibly, it is not, eh, I'm not, not going to say that. I'm just going to move on. No, we can't delegate it. We can't delegate it. It's fascinating to me when I go into churches How few men there are who seem passionate for the vision of the gospel in that place. I'm encouraged this weekend by interacting with a lot of you guys. My heart is encouraged by that. 
That's the kind of thing we're talking about here. But we can't treat our position as a rank. <clears throat> Second mistake we make, and I think this is probably more profound, is we feel as if we have nothing to offer in the area of spiritual headship. Dr. Larry Crabb writes this. He says, since Adam, every man has had a natural inclination to remain silent when he should speak. A man is most comfortable in situations in which he knows exactly what to do. I was in the gym yesterday. There's a lot of confidence in this room. <laughs> I was watching some of you men shoot three-pointers. You probably didn't see me. You know why? Because I'm not confident in that. And it's fascinating to me, we are most comfortable. I mean, I, I saw some of you guys in there. I hadn't seen, maybe you're skipping chapel, I don't know, but I hadn't seen at all. And I, but, but you're in there, and you were just as, as loud and proud, and, it, and you were doing phenomenal. It was, it was amazing to see some of this. But in situations where we feel the most confident, he says, we know exactly what to do. That's when we're the most comfortable. That's when this idea of headship or leadership becomes the most profound for us. But when things get confusing and scary, his insights tighten and he backs away. And I believe where we as men struggle is we feel like we have nothing to offer in the area of spiritual leadership because we make the assumption that spiritual headship means I know systematic theology, I understand practical theology, New Testament theology, Old Testament theology, and I can tell you every single thing there is to know about the Bible. That's not what God is talking about here. Do we need a relationship with the Word? Do we need to know the Word? Do we need to be in it? Yes. But the expression of what we bring and what we offer is not our knowledge. It's our desire to love Jesus, to follow Him, and to help our families and those around us to understand what that looks like as well. But when we feel like we have nothing to offer, we withdraw and we become passive. So I leave you with two challenges as we wrap up our time. Challenge number one is this. Start leading if you aren't already. We have to embrace the fact that Scripture does not permit the responsibility of spiritual headship to be delegated, abandoned, or redefined by culture. And so if you've checked out, it's time to check back in. So how do we do this if we don't know what to do? My youngest son, Dylan, um, is a very gifted young man in the area of athletics. He did not get that from me. I know it's surprising you look at me and look at my athletic cut and wonder, wow, really? He didn't get that from me. He, was, he is just an amazing athlete, and so we saw this at a young age, and I remember when he came home from school, because none of the other kids really showed a whole lot of interest, so at this point, I didn't really get involved in the sports world, but he came home, and he was in third or fourth grade whenever they, they could play soccer. By the way, I hate soccer. If you love soccer, I'm sorry, but I don't like it. So he came home, and he had a soccer form, and I could see, and I thought, oh, no. And so, Dad, can I play soccer? I said, okay, yeah. So we signed him up. I gave him a check for the entry fee. Um, we took him. Uh, we put it in his backpack. He took it to school. He went to a meeting after school. He came home. He said, I'm signed up, and guess what, Dad? You're the coach of our soccer team. <laughs> so I called the school. 
And they're like, hey, this ain't our thing. You need to call the rec league. So I called the rec league. And they're like, yeah, listen, if uh, we, any kids that come in for the first time like this, we, we want to get their parents involved. We think it's important for parents to be involved, especially dads. This is, this is a rec league saying what we, the church, should be saying, right? And so I'm like, oh, I mean, how do you say no to that? So I said, okay, well, guess who'd never coached soccer before? This guy. I mean, I don't even know what soccer, I don't, I don't know the rules of it. But I knew I had to step up and take on this responsibility. So as you think about this challenge to lead, here's what I did. I called a guy that I knew was a soccer guy, and I said, could you help me? coach my son's soccer team. I said, you don't have to be the one who gets the parents yelling. I'll deal, it. I'll deal with that. Because, um, you know, third grade soccer, fourth grade soccer, super intense. It's necessary for us to yell at the coach. And so he said yes. And so what he did is he, he, he downloaded for me several exercises that they could do and drills. And so we brought the kids out. And so the first time we did it, I was so organized. I had a clipboard. I had a whistle. I had orange cones, and it was the worst soccer practice in all of humanity ever. And what he told me afterwards was he said to me, he said, Paul, you just need to build a relationship with these boys. I think we played six games. We were one and five. We won the last game, but we beat the one team that everybody wanted to beat, a team that had beat us already once before. We entered in that game, and I confessed to those kids. I said, guys, it's obvious I don't know what I'm doing, so here's our strategy. I said, we have to score five more goals than they score. And the minute we go down by less than five, we've got to get right back up. And you know what? I don't know if it's because they're third and fourth graders, but they bought it, and we won. <laughs> that was my strategy. But here's the key, they loved me and I loved them. And we had so much fun together. A couple years ago, one of my kids told the other kids that they wanted to do something for Father's Day and so they said, just send dad, my kids call me daddy still, my youngest is 19, send daddy something just to tell him that you love him, a memory. <clears throat> Best Father's Day ever. But my oldest son, who we've had a tremendous relationship, but man, we've also butted heads. Had my oldest daughter, who's a very gifted uh, artist, draw a picture of me standing in the laundry room folding laundry and on the stairs leading down to the laundry room there was a ledge and there's a little boy sitting on the ledge and he's leaning like this on the ledge looking down at the guy who is me and he gave that to me and I immediately knew what it was it was the place where he and I as father and son, we just connected and we talked. We talked about stupid things there, but we also in moments talked about some very profound things as well. And I never thought that those conversations had any kind of impact, but when he thought of the one thing that meant the most to him about me, that he appreciated the most, it was that very thing. Guys, don't overthink this. 
don't overthink this. You know the dads that annoy me the most? The ones that are trying way too hard. Because if you can sit down with their kids, most of their kids will tell you, yeah, what you see in public is not the way it is in private. And that's been a big thing in our house. Pastor Paul in the home, Pastor Paul outside the home. Same stinking guy. Praise God for that in his grace. Our responsibility to be a spiritual leader is not dependent upon our ability because God equips us and enables us. He will provide us when we ask him to show us someone to help you. And chances are, if you have no clue, there's probably somebody around you that you came with that is willing to walk with you to help you become that person. Second challenge, and then I'm done. Start leading if you aren't leading already, but then those of you that are and those of you that are going to begin, lead authentically. I love the emphasis of grace in the songs this morning. Come Thou Found is my favorite, favorite song. Streams of mercy never ceasing. We're going to mess up. Some of you guys have never heard your father say, I screwed up, will you please forgive me? And maybe some of you as men have never said to your kids, I screwed up, will you please forgive me? Guys, we're going to mess up. If we really want to teach a gospel of grace, then we have to show grace, we have to express grace, and we have to allow our kids to show us grace when we choke because we will choke in this process. Ask for their forgiveness, but never forget you have been given this role to lead by God. He has enabled you, He has equipped you, and more importantly, He will give the grace for you to lead. Man, I want you to know something. You have what it takes to do this because God has called you to it. So regardless of how you feel, lead and pursue his calling in your life, in your marriage, in your home, in the church, in the context he has placed you as a man. Thanks again for listening to the Hidden Acres podcast. A reminder that one of the segments we'd like to start is camper and staff stories. So if you've got a good story to share on the podcast, email podcast at hacamps.org. To find out more about Hidden Acres, visit hacamps.org or look us up on social media. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you soon.